Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. For season three, we kick off with a conversation with Dr. Mark Oringer, a pioneer in the field of general thoracic surgery who developed the most prevalent surgery for esophageal cancer, the transhiatal esophagectomy. Join us as we delve into Dr. Oringer's upbringing in Pittsburgh, his time at Johns Hopkins, his memories of the legendary Vivian Thomas, his building a world-renowned thoracic surgery program at the University of Michigan, and how his wife, Susan Oringer, helped create a welcoming environment of inclusion for scores of diverse faculty, fellows, and trainees. We hope you enjoy the season three of Same Surgeon, Different Light. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce the esteemed and incomparable Dr. Mark Oringer. Dr. Oringer is the Cameron Haight Distinguished University Professor of Thoracic Surgery at the University of Michigan. He was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate at the University of Pittsburgh, undergraduate in 1963, and an Alpha Omega Alpha graduate at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School in 1967. He completed his general surgery and thoracic surgery residency training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1973. During his surgery residency, while at the French Shea Hospital in Bristol, England, under the mentorship of, of Mr. Ronald Belsey. Dr. Oringer joined the faculty of the section of thoracic surgery at the University of Michigan in 1973. He became head of the section in 1985 and served in this capacity until 2011. Dr. Oringer served as the thoracic surgery residency program director for 21 years from 1985 to 2006. Uh, we're gonna follow up with this because I, I, I entered a um, fellowship at Michigan in 2006, and I hope my matriculation didn't force him to step down as program director in retrospect. <laughs> he is one of the modern innovators of esophageal surgery, developing two leading esophageal operations, the trans, uh, transhiatal esophagectomy, and the combined collis-nissen hiatal hernia repair. At one point, the transhiatal esophagectomy was the most prevalent approach 
to esophagectomy in the United States. He is a past president of the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, and the director of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. And he led the charge in modernizing all three of those organizations uh, to the benefit of the cardiothoracic surgical community. Dr. Oringer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background. I know we all are aware of the giant of thoracic surgery. And when we think of your name, we are we think of the University of Michigan. We think of uh, the Block M and the Maze and Blue. Um, but you did not always spend your time at, at in Ann Arbor. That's right. I had a I had a, a very routine, unexciting uh, childhood growing up in the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was also known as the Smoky City at that time because of the steel mills that that gave off smoke that just pervaded uh, everywhere uh, in the city. Uh, I attended a public high school, a large high school called Taylor Alderdice. I was a varsity swimmer. I was class valedictorian, but the most important uh, event during uh, high school was that I met my wife-to-be, Susan, in geometry when we were both 16. Her maiden name was Michaels. There weren't any N's in the class. Mine was Oringer, so we sat next to each other, and that started our that started our time together, which uh, continued. We've been married for 58 years now, and she's been with me uh, through all that through all that transpired in my uh, professional and personal life. Uh, I went to University of Pittsburgh undergraduate school, interestingly, because Pittsburgh and Stanford were the only two colleges in the country at that time offering what, what was known as the trimester program, mm. where I could complete all eight years, all eight semesters rather of college by taking a semester in the summertime and just going straight through eight semesters in two and two thirds years. Uh, uh, that uh, may have sounded very exciting because I was in a hurry to get into medical school, but I have subsequently learned that this is the only time we go through this world. And uh, it's, it's probably better to take your time and smell the daisies on the way through. So I've discouraged my, my kids and grandkids from, from rushing their, their course of, uh, of uh, education and do other things that make life uh, worthwhile. But after college, I went to the University of Pittsburgh uh, Medical School and um, and from there to uh, Johns Hopkins, as, as you said, uh, you, know, you you mentioned Susan, and you know you, the two of you being uh, uh, childhood, not childhood sweethearts, but you know school uh, high school sweethearts, and you know you have mentored many of the current and uh, media past surgical leaders in this country. Um, but we could also say that Susan has co-mentored those individuals as well as, as she has been very influential and involved uh, in the, the academic program at Michigan. David, I think that's right. Uh, she, um, she was one of the people that was never afraid to tell me when I was getting a little too uh, rough around the edges. And she always provided a personal touch. Uh, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have uh, 
social gatherings at the local restaurant. We had them at our home. Uh, and she she knew all the residents and their wives on a first name basis. Had had children over to the to our house and uh, and and we enjoyed being with our with our residents and their families. And we made friendships that have continued for for decades now. Uh, uh, that we <laughs> we get holiday cards and and we exchange uh, emails. And it's it's really been a a very rewarding part of professional life. So. I recommend uh, highly that you have that every every leader in our field have a have a wife who can keep uh, her finger on the pulse and keep things running smoothly. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, your dad was an orthopedic surgeon, and somehow you did not become an orthopedic surgeon. You went into cardiothoracic surgery, um, although there is the sternum and the rib cage. Right. What was it like having a a uh, a physician uh, uh, parent um, growing up in Pittsburgh in this in this in the uh, early '60s. Well, my father was an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, he was a a no nonsense guy. Uh, he was the product of immigrant parents who owned a grocery store, and um, they sacrificed a great deal to put my father and his brother through uh, University of Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh Medical School. And uh, they instilled a work ethic in him uh, that, that was passed down uh, to me uh, by my father. And there's no question that I learned what hard work uh, was about. Uh, I recall very well that as a teenager, uh, my father came home from his office one evening for dinner and told me that he had gotten me a nice summer job. And I, boy, dad, that's great. And he told me to be down at the Pittsburgh uh, produce yards at, uh, at 4.30 in the morning the next day. And uh, I became part of the workforce down there, uh, greeting these gigantic freight trains as they pulled into the Pittsburgh produce station and they would pull back the door and there would be watermelons stacked from the bottom to the top of those cars and uh, we spent our hours and hours those summers unloading as part of a assembly line chain unloading watermelons throwing them from one person to another and putting them on trucks that were headed for the for the uh, grocery stores uh, i was a little bit i was a little bit miffed that uh, i was getting up and had to be down there at 5 30 in the morning and could barely keep my head up by the end of the day, uh, cut in a bit to my social life with Susan because I was always falling asleep. Uh, and the following year, I got the news that I had that job again. So this wasn't <laughs> something that I was exactly signing up for. It took a while to realize that uh, what the lesson was, was, was I was learning how to sweat to make a dollar and that it, it wasn't hard to work for what you, what you earned. And uh, I, I, I threw watermelons with guys who never who never made it beyond that stage of life, and uh, it's a it's a lesson that uh, I I have learned and 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 internalized uh, forever. But but that that was uh, that was life with my my dad. He was a he was a a, a firm believer in in hard work and and getting to where you needed to go by not being afraid to work. And it probably acclimated you to the, the work hours of a surgeon having to get up that early. I think it did. I think you're right. You're right. 
And then and go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the the balance to that came with my mother, who was a a fine arts major in college, and she became a very accomplished uh, concert pianist. And she taught her four sons, I was one of four boys, uh, to write and to speak proper English. And she's the genesis of my notorious red pen that I edit H&Ps and manuscripts with. And uh, she also survived uh, teaching every one of us music uh, instruments. And uh, uh, three, of, uh, three of us played the trombone. My other brother played the piano by ear. And she endured those terrible practice sessions. But again, as I'm sure you've come to appreciate uh, as you interview applicants for surgery, that many aspects of, of music accomplishment, practice, and repetition are the things that, that make a good surgeon. And so I learned that aspect of, of my personality from my, my mother, the fine arts major. You know, um, currently there's so much an emphasis on STEM. Uh, and the importance of mathematics and the, the science fields uh, in our sort of current knowledge economy um, in our our our, our uh, technology based society. But in in doing this podcast, I've interviewed so many uh, leaders who who have either a foundation or a a not insignificant experience in the liberal arts and the liberal arts education. And it's, it's interesting that you earlier said, you know, you you did the accelerated undergraduate into medical school, but now you counsel your own kids to kind of take a little bit of time and and uh, take advantage of the universal education. And you talk fondly of your your mother's uh, fine arts and liberal arts background that helps that that in many ways helped define you and your ability as a surgeon. Yeah, I think it's I think that's absolutely right. I I. My, uh, our oldest uh, grandson, who is now a, a senior in medical school out at UCSF in California, uh, when he was a when he was a, a freshman at Brown University, uh, he was disturbed and talked to me about it by the fact that he wasn't sure that the medical course that he envisioned following was going to be the right one for him because he just he couldn't grasp the significance of sitting for hours in, in inorganic chemistry uh, and, and what the relevance of that was to what he was going to ultimately do. And um, uh, it's, what you, it's just what you were talking about. Uh, it's almost a hazing that we require, that we require students uh, to go through that, oh, you have to do your, your inorganic chemistry and, and calculus and all the stuff that goes into that contributes to the STEM education, uh, and yet uh, that's not necessarily what makes a fine physician in the end. Yeah, yeah. What 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 makes the fine physician in the end? You think? Oh, we we need a couple more podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I think it's a it's it's the mindset. It's 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 caring about about people. It's being aware of these current issues of uh, diversity and equity and inclusion that, that we quite frankly never talked about before that, that have been, that we've 
been made so much aware of in the in the inequities in in healthcare delivery because of that. And uh, it's just a it's just a, a commitment to to patient care. Uh, it's one of the things that makes us old timers kind of uh, a little uneasy now. Uh, the idea of you know what. At Hopkins, we were the patient's physician. That means we did the admission H&P and we discharged the patient and we did everything in between. There were no nights off. Nobody knew the patients better than we did. When the work was done, we went home across the street and slept for a few hours. Uh, uh, maybe that's a big violation of current uh, work hour restrictions, but it was a, a commitment to patient care that uh, was instilled in us. So. You know, to to answer what makes a good physician, uh, it's 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 not one thing, but it's this it's this focus on on patient care above above all else. Perhaps sometimes to the you know personal sacrifice, uh, which which is is part of of what we do and nobody asks us to do it it's just inherent in what we do there are times when you just have to do what you have to do in the operating room and uh it may not it may not jive with a with a social obligation uh that you have but uh those are some of the, the thoughts that i have as we talk about what what makes a good physician so you know being a good physician not only requires being a, a gifted surgeon but awful but also a wonderful human being. And you described that uh, in one of your early mentors, uh, Dr. Henry Botson uh, at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Surgery. And describe to me sort of how Dr. Botson influenced you and then ultimately led to your, your decision to um, uh, go to, to uh, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, for surgical residency. Well, Henry Bonson was the was Alfred Blaylock's right hand man at Johns Hopkins, and he traveled around the world with Blaylock doing the the Moo Baby operation that uh, Alfred Blaylock was so well known for. Bonson was the chairman of the Department of Surgery at University of Pittsburgh uh, when I came through as a medical student, and I can tell you he was revered. He was kind but he was insightful. He was not afraid to call it as it was. He, even the way he scrubbed by the clock, uh, never less than 10 minutes. Uh, uh, he didn't like uh, blood on your white coat. And if you had it, he expected you to put a piece of white tape over it to cover it. Uh, he, was, he was just a superb technician and anybody who was aspiring to a career in surgery uh, would want to emulate him. So I set my sights on uh, having Dr. Bonson be my chairman of surgery and residency that I could emulate and and um, and be an outstanding surgeon. And when I went in to talk to him about that, uh, he uh, he told me to go to Hopkins, and I was so dejected. I thought he I thought he had rejected me and didn't want me uh, to be at Pittsburgh, uh, uh, rejected by my chairman uh, to go away. And I told him that I didn't think that. A, a lowly University of Pittsburgh medical student would uh, really have a, a prayer of getting into uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, surgical uh, residency. But um, he winked, told me to go down and interview. 
and and I did. I didn't realize how things uh, work, uh, and I am sure that there were, were phone calls or two that that he must have uh, he must have uh, delivered. But when we got there, we we interviewed, and um, I ultimately became uh, a resident uh, at Hopkins. Uh, and there's a there's a story that isn't so that, that Susan always reminds me about of why I really got in, and and uh, you know. Um, the surgery department at Hopkins is up on the sixth floor where it's been for 2,000 years, not much changes. And there's a black and white linoleum floor and uh, that doesn't change. And there's the, the headshots of all the residents who have trained uh, at Hopkins. And you see, you see names like in pictures of, uh, of Sabiston and of Cooley and just, just names of people that, that you recognize, uh, the Rehoffs, uh, um, and I had an interview Saturday morning and Susan and I were up there at 8 a.m. walking down the hall, just, just staring at all of these pictures of the greats. And uh, all of a sudden as the door opens, it was Dr. Robinson Baker, who I had a, he was a faculty member there and I had my interview with and he says, you are Inger? He yelled down the hall. I said, yes, sir. He said, that's your wife? Yes, sir. Said, well, why don't you both come in here? Said, hmm. You mean my wife should come in too? He said, yeah, come on down. So I had this interview and I, I recall saying about three words. Susan said most of it. She did the interviewing and, and, uh, and she always tells me that that's why I got into Hopkins. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's how the story unfolded. She interviewed uh, with me, but you know, all of us are, all of us uh, get to where we're going. Uh, it's no joke on the shoulders of, of giants. And Bonson was just a, a wonderful mentor who was pushing me to go above my expectations and to, and to, and to go for the golden ring. And that's where that's how I wound up at uh, at Hopkins. So at Hopkins, did you cross paths with Vivian Thomas? <laughs> oh, David. Yes, I was honored. I was honored to cross paths with Vivian Thomas. Now, you're not to you're not to tell anybody this, but but well, Vivian walked me through spaying our little pet chihuahua, uh, uh, and um, you know I didn't have time or money to take my our little tiny dog that we had gotten for our firstborn son to play with, and so the dog dog needed to needed to be spayed, and oh. we and so I you know I. What else do I talked to him and he said, well, just bring up the bring up the little puppy. And so, I, so he put the dog to sleep and walked me through the, the uh, hysterectomy, oophorectomy. And it was a great operation. But yes, he was uh, he was, uh, you know, I, anybody there who knew him, uh, he, he ran the, the surgery uh, animal lab and and he, he mentored us, you know, his his technique was as good as any surgeon I've ever operated was with. And I'm sure you know that uh, many say that he was really the, the technical wizard behind the, uh, the Blaylock shunt. And uh, um, just just a, a wonderful human being. So uh, Vivian Thomas is, uh, you know, he, he ran uh, the research laboratory there and Blaylock, Dr. Blaylock's research laboratory that there was a curriculum right for the 
the um, junior residents to spend time in his in Vivian Thomas's lab to get technical skills. Is that correct? That's correct. They take us through like a small bowel section and anastomosis, skin incisions, closing the belly, uh, doing a vascular anastomosis, and he had it all spelled out for us. And then by the time that you were on the clinical services, you had that sort of comfort level with the technical aspects of these different procedures taught to you by Vivian Thomas. That is correct. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the early stage of surgical simulation uh, that I think we we take for granted now, but may actually not be as good as it was in the late 60s, early 70s and in, in, in working with Vivian Thomas at Hopkins. That's correct. So, you know, when we think of Hopkins, it's we, you know, Baltimore at that time uh, was very much a, a southern city. Um, and uh, Hopkins is is steeped in tradition. Um, and part of that tradition is is a way uh, a resident at that time looked and their background um, and their experiences. And you probably didn't quite fit that traditional resident look and background and experiences. How did you navigate that to be successful in that environment? Yeah, the way I navigated most everything, and that was just by by hard work. And uh, that's not a that's <laughs> not said lightly. I mean, it's a, no, I didn't I didn't meet the mold. I hadn't gone to the, to the fancy undergraduate school. And I'll tell you another thing that I'm Jewish. There were two Jewish residents in the history of, uh, of Hopkins uh, when I got there. Um, what influence that had, I, I, I'll, I don't know if it did or not, but uh, it came up a few times when, when inadvertent comments were made uh, by those who, who weren't uh, sensitive to, to issues like that. And, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a time, as you said, Hopkins was very much a, a Southern school. I will tell you that uh, the chief residents, the Halstead residents, the ones who ascended, who survived the, the pyramid were, were 14 interns who began, were reduced in the second year to one resident who got to finish the program. That Halstead resident was given a floor of the hospital and an operating room to him, himself and I'll say himself, because there were no women. And uh, um, we, we did our thing in that, in that senior year, supported by our staff of uh, the hierarchy of uh, assistant residents and uh, interns uh, and students below us. It, it established a, a feeling of camaraderie like none that ever existed because nobody wanted one of the chief's patients to have a complication. We watched over each other's patients uh, so carefully and, and rounded at all hours of the night and took care of problems before they occurred. But my floor, my floor, all said four, was the, the black female floor. So yes, there was still a separation of floors by races when I began uh, my residency uh, in 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 '67, uh, and I will tell you, it's I have never, you know, I don't even like to 
to mention it because I can't, I can't. Yeah. And so anyway, that's, a, a that's segregated, a, it was a segregated floor. Absolutely. Yeah. Segregated by, by race and, and by gender. And, you know, we, we talked about, um, you know, I talked about how, how Susan sort of co-moderate, co-mentored uh, trainees and faculty coming through Michigan. The, the, the big thing that I noticed uh, at Michigan at the time of my training there is the, the culture of inclusion and that culture being led by you as well as others, and then also dedication to the patients. Did your experience at Hopkins lead you to, to find important and prioritize that culture of inclusion when you then had control of the culture? Um, I think it was a, it was an ingrained, it was an ingrained mandate uh, the the Jewish tradition uh, places a priority on caring for one another, uh, doing as you would do to do to yourself, doing to others as you would do to yourself, and uh, respecting uh, diversity and every man for and woman for who they are, and. Uh, it was it was just part of that's why that experience of having that ward that segregated ward just just was it was uh, it was not well tolerated but by my just my inherent feeling about it but that had much to do with with our with our it, it was a it wasn't anything that we set out with the idea that we're coming to Michigan to change the culture. It was who we are and what we expected to happen under our leadership. Yeah, and it's the, it, it 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 underscores the importance of leadership, and we're going to uh, click on that theme uh, in a in a bit as we talk about some of your leadership posts. But you know, I want to sort of quickly discuss Ronald Belzey. I know you, as part of your curriculum, uh, you traveled at Hopkins. You traveled to uh, England and work with Ronald Belzey. And, and Ronald Belzey is one of the, the grandparents of esophageal uh, uh, surgery. What, what was that experience like? I, it was, um, it was uh, life-changing and career-changing uh, for me. At Hopkins, I, I, I loved surgery, period. Uh, for example, uh, Jack Hoops, the head of plastic surgery, was, uh, was an eminent uh, technician. Uh, hand surgery, head and neck surgery. I thought that might be what I did, but in our third year, in our third year, uh, I was selected to go to, to England for that rotation in, in England uh, with Belsey. It was a six month rotation. So Susan packed up our, our 18 month old and two month old kids and off we went to live on a farm in, in England and to commute to the hospital a couple miles down the road. And Mr. Ronald Belsey uh, was the head of, of uh, thoracic surgery there. He, this was a was private practice within the National Health Service. Uh, Mr. because English, English surgeons are called 
are called Mr. Years ago, as you know, the the uh, the, the surgeons were 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 barbers, or the barbers were surgeons. Yeah. And then and then in England, when it was uh, deemed that that the barbers, that the surgeons should be also regarded as physicians, uh, the surgeon said, "Forget it, pal. You've called us uh, uh, um, barbers for so long." That uh, we'll we'll maintain our difference, and surgeons will be known as Mister over there. So all the surgeons in England are still called Mister after the, the medieval days. And so Mister Ronald Belsey was a was an eminent uh, thoracic surgeon. Uh, he did cardiac and pulmonary, but he was way ahead of his time in in uh, in esophageal surgery. Uh, he thought about a functional lower esophageal sphincter before there was ever manometry. Um, the, the, young, the young people listening to this think about a hiatal hernia as stomach stuck up in the chest somewhere. Uh, he thought about the functional lower esophageal sphincter that controls acid reflux. So that was unheard of. There weren't pH probes or manometry and developed uh, his anti-reflux operation, the, the Belzey Mark IV repair. Uh, which was a, a partial fundoplication to prevent reflux. And the way the National Health Service was structured, England you had a map, was divided into eight regional health centers, and there was one specialty hospital in thoracic, in neurosurgery, and whatever the specialty was, orthopedics, uh, one specialty for that region. So French A Hospital, where Belsey was, uh, took care of Southwest England, and four million people. And that referral base dropped more esophageal surgery into one hospital than we would have seen in I don't know how many residencies in the United States because it was just concentrated there. And we just operated up a storm. I mean, he, he did multiple esophagectomies, uh, uh, you know, two, two a day, sometimes weeks in a row. And, um, he was just a, he was, he, he believed in uh, the apprentice style of surgery. He wasn't a, he wasn't a, a vocal teacher, do this, do that. You were expected to watch. And one day after the, there had, you had helped him on 25 or 30 hiatal hernia operations, he wouldn't show up. Yeah. And the sister, that's what they called the nurses there, the sister would say, uh, Mr. Oringer, you're on now, and that and you were that was the the signal that you were now being given the the flag to to do one of Belsey's operations the way he would do it. But but that exposure to to that amount of esophageal surgery and 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 what's involved with doing a quality esophageal operation really changed my career plans because there were not many esophageal surgery centers in the country because internists would not send patients to, to surgeons because of the horrendous results with esophageal resection and, and, and leaks and mediastinitis and so forth. But yeah. that was, that was a, a, a turning point in my career. You know, when I take um, uh, trainees through uh, lung resection and we're doing a mediastinal lymphadenectomy, you know, oftentimes we're taking down inferior pulmonary ligament um, and we come to station nine lymph node, also known as the Belsey node. 
Um, and, you know, because it provides access, especially on the left side, you know, straight down to the esophagus. And I then go on to ask him, well, who was Belzy? And nine times out of 10, um, I get it, I don't know. And what are your thoughts on the importance of, I mean, we discussed earlier on, on sort of the, the liberal arts um, and history is part of that. Um, but what is your what are your thoughts on the importance of history and understanding the stories of previous surgeons uh, in sort of current modern surgical education? Well, we we learn we learn from from history, and and when history is forgotten. Uh, there are some big voids in in our in our experiences, and uh, when we when you look at so many of the operations that we do now, they're based upon uh, refinements of of operations that were done by others and set the stage for for developments that led to led to what we're doing now. Uh, how we preserve how we preserve that history is uh, is a is a uh, mystery unless we have people like you or a system of the STS that's dedicated to to uh, maintaining some sort of uh, of of uh, history a sense of history. Uh, tried to start as a when I was STS president a a, uh, a sense of history. Uh, uh, a room where we might we might put documents or writings that that are that our history uh, is so important uh, elements of our history and uh, it's hard unless you've got somebody really dedicated to doing that but but you're right David how we the history the history uh, is important in understanding what we're doing and why we're doing it and I'll tell you that that. Uh, robotic esophagectomy now can be traced back to a few operations before that you're quite familiar with that that these were all part of the stepping stones of, of where we are so I, I hate to see history lost and it takes people really dedicated to preserving it uh, you know there's a there's an interesting I don't, I don't want to put a uh, a plug for Steve Yang and the Hopkins group, but I just became aware of it last year where where they have a they have a website that he assigns to a medical student rotating on thoracic uh, each month a, uh, a job of finding out what important event in thoracic surgery occurred on this date hmm. and and you know, he called me and said, would you mind discussing the, the date of your first transidal esophagectomy? And I just looked at him and I said, well, I don't know what that is. And he said, well, here's the date. And he had gotten this from some remote talk that I had given. And uh, they're preserving the history uh, of, of the people who have contributed substantially to our field. But there's no question that it, it really rounds out it rounds out, it gives you a, a framework for why we do what we do if you understand what came before. You know, um, uh, when my first year um, in practice, so this was in, in 08, uh, 
someone asked me um, in a, in a in a meeting, uh, "Do you see yourself doing minimally invasive esophagectomy?" And then my division chief at the time said, "He already does minimally invasive esophagectomy. He does a transhiatal <laughs> esophagectomy." Um, tell me, you are you? I, I don't want to say you invented that procedure because I think that will be part of the the story that you that I'm going to ask you about, but your name name is synonymous with that procedure and and you have optimized it and fine-tuned it and developed it as a approach to to esophagectomy that as i mentioned earlier at one point was the most prevalent approach uh in this country and i think it's a it's a good uh lesson of innovation um how how did you come how did you uh develop this procedure Well, when I when I had that time at Hopkins, uh, there was there was a period when Mr. Belsey was a master of esophagectomy, but he routinely did an intrathoracic anastomosis between the esophagus and stomach, and he used five O wire, five O wire anastomosis, Ooh. and um, to watch it happen was uh, incredible. He was just just uh, a, such a gifted surgeon, but I, you know, he would go up the lesser curvature with this big stapler at that time and amputate across the tip and do an anastomosis to the remaining stomach. And there was a T formed at that anastomosis and the T at that anastomosis was the part that would, would leak if there were going to be a leak. And there was a time there, whereas a fourth year senior resident from Hopkins comes to save the world and to go to to go to French A Hospital, I had five patients in the intensive care unit at, Hopkins, at, uh, at, at French A Hospital uh, in various stages of death from median stenitis, uh, leaking from their esophagastric anastomoses uh, into their chest and, uh, and dying of sepsis. And uh, it, it was a, a traumatic experience that I'll, I'll never forget. And I, and I, I just, I was just, adamant that there had to be a better way to do the operation and, and I, I started reading at that time some of the uh, otolaryngology experience from from Asia where, where they had the ENT guys had been pulling the, the stomach uh, up to replace the pharynx uh, for, for pharyngoesophageal resections and it, it seemed that it was astounding to get the stomach up there. I had been taught, like every other resident had been taught at Hopkins for decades, that the mobilized stomach uh, would reach to the apex of the right chest for an anastomosis and no further. And that was that. And so this idea was uh, just craziness to me. But when I went back to Hopkins, uh, I went to the to the ultimate laboratory, to the autopsy room. And I started working with one of the, the deaners down there who knew as much about anatomy as I did. And we, we started preparing the stomach, doing a generous coker maneuver and by straightening out the curve at the lesser curvature and uh, uh, measuring uh, how far up the tip of that stomach would reach and would, it, would, it, would, the, would the Caucasian uh, stomach uh, make it to the neck in contrast to the 
Asian stomach, which had to be a, a racial uh, uh, difference. Well, we found that at least in the autopsy room, the stomach would reach to the neck, and and if it was done pro if it was mobilized properly, and uh, as chief resident that last year as the Halstead resident, uh, I pulled the stomach up substernally, bypassed a malignity fistula in a patient, which showed to my amazement that the stomach did reach to the neck, even in the living patient. And that became the basis for the approach when I took over the thoracic service of, at Hopkins of, the, of making the edict, there would be no more intrathoracic anastomoses. We would avoid respiratory insufficiency from a combined thoracotomy and abdominal operation. And we would avoid an intrathoracic anastomotic leak and median stenitis by placing the anastomosis in the neck. And that became, that became the approach that we took for the first year and a half I was here of, of doing the three-hold operation, neck, chest, and abdomen, abdomen to mobilize the stomach and the chest to take out the esophagus and the neck to receive the stomach and anastomosis in the neck. And then one day, without really pre-planning, we, we always had the x-rays hanging in the room at the time before we had CT scans and the barium swallow was there and a pretty heavy uh, patient. And he had a large hiatal hernia and a very small GE junction adenocarcinoma. And he had such a big hernia that the GE junction was just about four inches below the carina when you looked on the x-ray hanging on the wall. And I knew from our experience with median stenoscopy for sampling lymph nodes for lung cancer that we could reach the carina from the neck. And if, if we mobilize the esophagogastric junction downward into the abdomen as we did for a hernia repair, uh, we had five, six, seven centimeters of esophagus below the diaphragm. And looking back up at the wall, I said, you know, most of this esophagus has already been mobilized. And I put my fingers up into the, through the hiatus and re-prepped and redraped the neck, which we won't get into because that hadn't been planned. And I asked the nurse to break the field and prep the neck. And I got a lot of looks that and I understand why. I mean, we broke a sterile field and made a new sterile field in the neck, but getting around the esophagus from the neck and going down from above and up from below, we freed up the entire esophagus divided the esophagus in the neck, uh, resected the rest of the esophagogastric junction through the abdomen and brought the stomach up and did the anastomosis in the neck. And we were anticipating, you know, a, a week in the ICU, which I had observed, which I had reserved if the patient even uh, uh, survived. Uh, and this fellow is just never turned a hair and, and, and went home without, without complication. And that was sort of the aha moment. And what followed thereafter were just a series of uh, transhiatal esophagectomies without thoracotomy. And it set the stage for the series that we ultimately presented a million years later. But it was not something that, that, was, that was thought about for decades and decades and planned in the operating room, the dog lab uh, first. Uh, uh, 
I subsequently uh, found as I was writing up this experience that the blunt removal of the esophagus from the chest had been uh, described by Gray Turner in England in the 1930s. He didn't reconnect the esophagus. He brought out an esophagostomy and, and, a, and a gastrostomy, but, but uh, so it's not an operation that I say I, I invented. I just refined it. And over the years, uh, this thing was promulgated as I got better and better uh, at it, uh, which, which happens. <laughs> I thought that we were knocking off a third of, when we first did it, a third of the patients were hoarse from recurrent nerve injury. And I thought, well, that's the price we pay for avoiding a thoracotomy that we're dissecting underneath the aortic arch and we're just by necessity injuring the recurrent nerve. And when I watched my own video of this at the Marin College of Surgeons, I saw a retractor go in right against the tracheoesophageal groove and realized that I was hurting that nerve myself in the operation. And so recognizing that and uh, eliminating a retractor anywhere on the medial aspect of the neck incision and only using the index finger to retract the trachea uh, reduced the recurrent nerve injury rate to the one to 2% range, which, which it really should be uh, in the single digits. So uh, different elements of the operation were refined uh, over time, but that's how it all evolved. And I don't think when you talk about innovation, this wasn't something that began uh, on a on a uh, on a draft table with a with a caliper and, and rulers figuring out uh, what equation we should use to to develop this operation. It was just done on the moment um, because it seemed to make sense. Now uh, you have a, a a experience presenting this operation at the I believe the AATS and um, there was a, a kind of a, a, a humorous response from the stunned audience when you presented this data. Uh, you you want to elaborate on that? Well, now you're now you're making me reach back into the into the deep deep uh, sulci of my gray matter. Uh, when I presented my paper as a as a young faculty member at the AATS uh, meeting. Um, a young faculty guy telling the the graybeards of thoracic surgery that you you didn't have to open the open the chest you could take out the esophagus uh, without that and bring it up to the neck and uh, everything would be fine uh, that went over like a lead balloon and one person after another uh, rose to discuss the paper and uh, as we often see uh, those who were most vociferous were people who had never even thought about thought about it or done it, but they were there uh, to criticize it. Now, Dr. Alton Oxner was a giant in thoracic surgery. He was the first to to um, connect smoking to lung cancer, mm -hmm. and 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 campaigned uh, against uh, uh, smoking. Uh, but he was a highly respected thoracic surgeon. And he got up and uh, it's, it's a little, he said that, you know, the, the, the advances in thoracic surgery have been made by the ability to open the thorax 
to visualize the structures you're operating on, to do meticulous hemostasis. And he said that, um, that uh, this op not opening the chest was really stepping back into the dark ages. And what he said, where you didn't have hemostasis, uh, he said that uh, uh, taking out the esophagus without opening the chest is like making love in a hammock standing up. <laughs> so you can visualize that. You're just making it harder on ourselves. Yeah. But this discussion went right through the the 25-minute coffee break. I never saw anything uh, like this. But the last discussant was Dr. Griff Pearson from Toronto. And Pearson was a few years older than me, relatively young, but heading a, a very vibrant thoracic group in Toronto. He had called several times. We had discussed the operation, and he had done a few. And he stood up and said that he would encourage people not to be so quick to criticize the approach without having tried it. And he said, what do you say, David? He said, don't knock it unless you've tried it. <laughs> and, and I will always remember neither of those comments made it into print, by the way, into the <laughs> discussion of the paper in the journal for and cardiovascular, but there was a lot of heated discussion by those who felt that you know, we'd reach up into the chest and tear the aorta in two and the airway in two and, and there would be, Belzy was there and Belzy got up and he said, you know, the first 14 blood transfusions were given without type and cross match. And then in his English accent, and then he said, and then all the rest died. <laughs> and so he was saying that this was, this was just uh, not, he wasn't uh, overly enthusiastic about not doing a thoracic operation. Through the chest, but and, uh, you and, know, it was a lot of discussion. And eventually, it became one of the most prevalent operations for esophagectomy in the country. I know, in the interest of time, I want to get to a, a final question, but I do want to acknowledge, um, you know, this the story of the transhiatal esophagectomy really sort of highlights your approach to innovation, really identifying a problem, a need, and a gap during doing an iterative process to figure out how to, to, to fix that problem, implementing the fix, and then looking at it from an objective scientific point of view. And you've taken that approach to the non-clinical aspects of innovation. And I wanna highlight really as STS president, your restructuring of the STS organization that has led to its success today as TSDA secretary and, and uh, president um, developing the match system uh, that our fellows um, uh, participate uh, in uh, today. And then as you alluded to coming to Michigan and resuscitating a, a general thoracic surgical program at Michigan that really um, uh, fits the legacy of John Alexander, and and so really stressing the importance of taking your skill set from the the innovative clinical standpoint and translating it to leadership in all facets of healthcare. Well, uh, these these um, these 
big challenges in my uh, professional career were uh, were managed in part by background, but in part by by uh, stepping out of my comfort zone, which you know, as thoracic surgeons, we're we're kind of rigid people that learn a way to do something and we do it and we do it and we do it and that's the way it's supposed to be and to to hear from the well-established is uh, often very diff difficult, but uh, the match, the match, we we had a thoracic surgeons were residents were selected in the old days by the thoracic program director saying, identifying some some surgical resident and saying, you look like you'd be a good thoracic surgeon, so we'll take you into our residency good candidates from other programs when they went to apply there weren't any slots left uh, there wasn't any order to how we how we conducted a selection of our of our residents and the match had been used in other specialties and to try to, to try to convince thoracic surgeons that that the match having some system orderly selection of the process for our residents was was worthwhile was um, was quite tough, and and uh, we weren't a very receptive specialty. But Gordon Murray, who was SGS president, and I was, I mean TSDA president, and I was the secretary at that time. We decided to enforce this this rule, and we did so by sending to all those programs that would not comply with a match. We sent letters to the CEOs and the chairman of departments of the respected thoracic surgery program directors who didn't comply with the mandate to be in a match, which we also got through the RRC. And uh, within a year, 98% uh, of all thoracic programs were in compliance and the thoracic match was established. Uh, not a popular decision, but one that really needed to do because it was the right thing for our, for our residents. And the, the the challenge of the STS as president was a was an enormous uh, hurdle to jump. It was clear that the STS, which had begun 35 years before as a very small uh, cottage group of of surgeons who who felt that there had to be an organization for the layman thoracic surgeon, not necessarily the academic graybeards in the AETS, established the STS. And it had a, a, um, a management company that it hired to keep the books and to, and to uh, plan the meetings uh, and where they would be and so forth. And it was clear that we had, it was clear to some of us, that we had outgrown the, the we had outgrown the, the magnitude of who we were. Uh, and a small management company and that we should go to independent management. At the same time, uh, we set about rewriting our bylaws. Uh, instead of having 3000 committees that are so common in big organizations, that each committee has to act, each decision has to be made by committee and passed up the line. We developed the STS workforce structure where the uh, workforces for various problems could be identified, the problem solved, and then the workforce disbanded to make our organization more nimble. And then finally, uh, going building shopping and finding a new home for the, the STS, which, which 
after a, a, a search and building hunting, like you do house hunting when you're buying a new home, uh, we settled on the American College of Surgeons building in, in Chicago and the floor that we occupy there. But during that time, these decisions were, were really um, rebuffed by some of the most respected thoracic surgeons in our specialty, people whose opinions I valued. But a group of us felt that these things had to be done if our, if our organization were to advance. And uh, we, we pushed these changes through. Uh, I, I never regretted it, but I will tell you, there were many, many sleepless nights at that time as, uh, as leadership style was exerted without trying not to offend uh, any more people and being told this wasn't gonna work and you were gonna destroy the specialty and so forth. But um, our specialty is, is uh, vital and our members are resilient and uh, they responded, the majority responded and, and look who we are today. And uh, it's a real source of pride to me. Yeah, in, in order to progress and stay modern and, and fit the needs of the community, oftentimes leadership has to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, before we end, I, I want to um, uh, ask this final question that we ask all our guests. You know, where is cardiothoracic surgery going in, in your eyes? What's what's our future? Um, I, I think I think that uh, we've got and continue to have an extraordinarily dynamic and evolving uh, specialty. Uh, you know, the, the complexity and the specialization of each of our of components of uh, thoracic and cardiac and pediatric cardiac, um, each of those is enough to justify a specialty uh, unto itself. And the, and the advances that have happened just since my, since I, Finished uh, my training with with catheter-based surgery and and uh, uh, aortic and vascular surgery uh, uh, being done uh, uh, catheter-based and advances in xenotransplantation and mechanical support of the failing part neonatal and congenital surgery and now in, in general thoracic using uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy and chemotherapy prior to surgery, uh, extending the life of people with lung cancer and probably esophageal cancer as well. This is a, a vibrant specialty, which is alive and well. It has vast, vast career options for those that are interested in this field. And uh, I wouldn't use my heartbeats any other way if given the chance. It's a great field. Well, great. You know, this is a great, vibrant field in part because of your success, your forward thinking, and your leadership in the specialty, uh, as well as as uh, Susan's partnership with you uh, in creating a, a, a community of inclusion uh, that has spawned so many um, uh, additional leaders within our field. Dr. Mark Oringert, thank you very much for joining our podcast today. Uh, same Surgeon, Different Light. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.